Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Welcome uh, to the show, and thank you for inviting me into your home again this week. Um, okay, we have got some some interesting things to talk about uh, this week, and I have finally, we are getting back together. Uh, Clint Haycock is a former evangelical uh, minister who lives in the United Kingdom and runs a podcast called the Mind Shift podcast link in the uh section below in the description section below welcome back to the show clint i cannot believe it's been this long we have to do some more stuff we've got to yeah yeah i agree now clint's kind of my if you guys have not seen our earlier work and i would understand if you haven't it was a few years ago we did a we did a few podcasts together and i really really recommend checking those out all of that content is totally evergreen excuse me it's totally still relevant because Clint's kind of my go-to guy to talk to about the topic of Christian nationalism or sort of religious fervor that can that can kind of uh, coalesce around certain really toxic and awful ideas that are ideological, racial in nature. Often, um, there's a lot of racism in in some of these outfits, and um, kind of represents what I'm what I kind of think of as some of the very worst that the quote-unquote southern thinking in the United States can can represent. You know, we, we can look at historically groups like um, the, the Ku Klux Klan or the, um, some of the neo-Nazi movements and such that come up out of the South. And, these, and it's not like these are exclusively in that geographical region, but it's interesting how a lot of these groups beca- will thrive and survive c- clinging to mantras and symbolism that is connected deeply with the South. Not only Confederate flags, but going all the way back to Civil War language and the Reconstruction. And uh, there's, a, there's a movement called Neo-Confederacism. This is a thing. It's a real thing. I, you know, I, these are things I only recently learned about in some ways. Other things I've known about for a while. And there's this guy, Doug Wilson. And Clint and I are going to talk about this guy today because he's representative of the, the very worst of this. Um, I'm going to share this little tiny bit with uh, the audience, Clint, and then we'll get into the specifics of who Doug Wilson is and, and what this nonsense is about. But this really hit home for me. This entire concept of white supremacy and, 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 uh, and white power and the inherent God-given, you know, biological, religious order of things that, that white people are, you know, Anglo people are somehow inherently God's children, inherently superior, the, the, the superior race and everything else, any minority group is completely not that. They are not equal, right? It's, it goes back to the three-fifths thinking. It goes back to this, this slave thinking. And in fact, there's an awful lot of justification and rationalization of our horrifically awful slave times uh, in history here in the United States. Um, you know, I, 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 it's just, it's awful. There really is no apologizing for it or rationalizing it. It was simply wrong. 
And yet you will find people who, right in the here and now, offer up uh, apologia for it. They write papers. They write books. They, they, they go into this. And this was not something that, you know, from my Scientology background and my rather, you know, bubble world view that I'd had as a Scientologist, racism wasn't part of that package for me as a Scientologist. That wasn't part of that whole picture. Um, and so this was kind of this whole onslaught of this awful it was sort of new to me and learning about after coming out of Scientology. And while doing my master's program, I was exposed to a set of uh, a story that was uh, written called the Turner Diaries, which were this was this was you know decades ago, but it was a sort of uh, a microcosm of this awful worldview where a guy wrote this book, the Turner Diaries. It was a serialized edition of stories that were all about inciting and executing a race war where the whites were going to take out all the other minorities and literally hang them on crosses and burn them and kill them and destroy them because this was the natural order of things. And the man who wrote that was, of course, a, a, a horrifically racist individual, a well-educated man, by the way. Um, so not some hick from the hills. This was a man who had actually had a university degree. I think he was a, a math or a physics uh, teacher. And and for me personally, what, I, what I'm telling, why I'm tell, talking about this to start the show here today is because it was a real kind of awakening moment for me. It was a real like, holy shit, this really exists. There are people who have views that are so monstrous, that are so counter to what the United States of America and what civilized countries anywhere and civilization is all about. They don't want that. Not if it's not exactly according to how they see things have to be racially. And they're all hung up on this. And this is a, it's a kind of psychosis as far as I can tell. I really can't come up with a better word to... There, there's definitely some kind of very skewed thing going on here in terms of how these individuals are seeing the world. And I don't, and I think there's a line, I, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not, this is where my lack of full psychological, you know, PhD level understanding <laughs> of this stuff might, might fall a little bit because I, I do struggle with drawing a line in the sand between where can you take somebody who is who may be grossly ill-informed, grossly miseducated, raised in a cultic environment, and change or intervene or 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 seek to you know maybe mediate or or change those views, versus a person who is sort of I consider at a kind of serial killer mentality where violence is normalized in their mind and desired. And they actually fantasize about being able to execute their vision on the world at large, and and they have a very racist vision. And this is, unfortunately, what I'm, you know, me having to first realize that's a thing was quite a hard moment for me. It was real, like, damn, damn. And it really kind of put me in a funk for a few days uh, when I first was encountering that I it was it was very emotionally devastating to realize the extent to which some people can take these extremist ideas and absolutely you know identify with them so much that they just make it their mission in life 
to try to enact these kind of policies and convince other people this is the way the world should be and this is how it should work. And it appears to me from the reading and study that I've done that um, that Clint sent me on this Doug Wilson character that this man is one such kind of person. And so I, you know, that's that's a real problem because we have to at least expose this kind of thing for what it is when such an individual is gaining too much traction, too much influence, or is perhaps, you know, using covert, coercive messaging and propaganda techniques to get people on board who aren't that way, don't think that way, but can gradually be brought into that kind of thinking too. That's the whole cult thing. That's the whole coercive control thing. That's thought reform in action. And that's why this is of concern. So um, so now that I've kind of introed this with, wow, this stuff's <laughs> really awful, let's go ahead and talk about what are we talking about here, right? So, Clint, how, how do you want to start talking about this guy and, and who he is? Should we go into a little bit of the history or what do you, how do you yeah. want to approach this? Well, I was going to say, um, I sent you an article this morning and it was on the Southern Poverty Law Center website. That's how I first heard of Doug Wilson probably going back about four years ago now, I came across that article just doing some research on Christian Reconstructionism, which I think we've talked about before, this whole Dominion theology piece. Yes. In in that connection, I heard the name Doug Wilson, read the article by, uh, it was called Mark Potox is his name. I actually did a podcast with Mark on off the back of that article that he wrote. I think it was 2005 he wrote that article, kind of an expose of Wilson's sprawling religious empire and some of the scandals that have been surrounding him for the decades, really, because he's been there since in the Moscow Pullman area since about the late 70s, I think 1977 and 78, he took over as pastor of a church. And then he's been there that decades, really. So that's this how is, I got introduced to him. Right. And to clarify, we're talking about a town in Idaho, Moscow, yeah. Idaho. This yeah. isn't Mos this isn't Russia, right? It just happens no. to have that name. <laughs> and um, and specifically the organization there is Christ Church. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. that's the that's the sort of group that he runs. And I, I guess the congregation yeah. size is 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 stated. There was a vice article as well on this mm -hmm. where it's it's about and there and there have been interviews with survivors of this group yeah. and this is a very if you guys have followed my work on the duggers and the and the the um uh bill gothard uh dogma right the whole umbrella and you know the whole pay you know sort of uh men are in charge and that's the natural yeah, order of things the whole patriarchy thing that's all dogmatic with these people this is not a, a matter of uh, having social ideas just for the sake of social ideas, this is biblical patriarchy. And this yeah. is very much what Doug Wilson's and his congregation is all about. And so, of course, with that kind of extremist belief set comes extremist activity and domestic abuse specifically. And so there yeah. have been stories from survivors of these um, of these you know, domestic uh, partnerships that get away from, you know, people who, husbands who will, who will use scripture to justify marital rape and, and, and yep. child abuse and beatings and things like this. So it's really unsavory stuff we're talking about here. It really is. Yeah. And that, I was going to say, he, he has a connection with Bill Gothard in that sense that they may not have ever met, but their, their teachings on biblical patriarchy or what a quote, quote, Christian marriage should look like is exactly what you just described, where according to their reading of the Bible, 
women should be submissive to men overall and specifically to their husbands. And in fact, in some kind of more extreme uh, elements of this, they say that a woman should be submissive to her father while she's single living under his roof. And then when she gets married, she then transfers her submission to her husband. Uh, so at no point is she ever out from that, as you say, the umbrella of authority. And so th there's another kind of a side movement called stay-at-home daughters, which is a really you know, it's another extreme element to this biblical patriarchy whereby young girls, they stay at home until they get married. So a lot of them won't have a career. Some won't even ever get a driver's license, no marketable skills, no, no job skills. And because they're, they're going to be homemakers and wives and, and all that. So, you know, this is a really destructive sort of teaching on that level. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because when you talk about it in that way, I, th I start realizing to myself, wow, you know, their views on slavery don't just apply to minority groups. They apply <laughs> yeah. to women as a, as a, exactly. as a body. You know, women are yeah. property to these people and they never, I've not seen them go that far in statements, but what they do say over and over and over again is women must submit. They yeah. must submit to the authority of the male in the relationship. And this is absolutely expected behavior. And, they, and unfortunately, the young men who are raised in these groups are, are are born into families that believe and practice this. And so they truly normalize this as absolutely the way God intended families to be. Yeah. yeah and then out of that comes things like the purity culture, yes. which I'm sure you must have talked about, because that's obviously in the Bill Gothard wheelhouse as well. Oh, yeah. So what you have is these young men and women, young boys and girls, they're told from very, very early ages that men and women on their wedding night, they have to be virgins. And that's all part of God's plan for blessing their marriage and having multiple children. And so what happens though, in that context is if a young woman or a girl is sexually molested or assaulted, let's say in a church by a pastor or a leader, oftentimes she will be blamed for it. And this is the disturbing thing. There were two kind of high profile cases at Doug Wilson's church, where in one case, a young woman was abused by one of his, it was a student, because not only does he run Christchurch, he runs New St. Andrews College, which is like a Bible college. He runs Greyfriars Hall, which is a seminary. He's got all these sort of arms of his, of his empire, really. And so this was a seminary student who abused this young girl who was about somewhere around 13 or 14 when it all started. Now he turned around and blamed the parents and blamed the girl and exonerated the abuser. You exactly. know, and so, and in another case, he he actually had a pedophile who was a, a student at his college. He went to prison, came out. He welcomed him back with open arms, and bizarrely married this pedophile to one of the women at his church. And to this day, he he has defended that action. He said, "If I had it to do over again, I'd do the same thing." You know, exactly. So he and married that, a known pedophile. That, that's and, a shocking story. And just so we're clear on what we mean here, because this is actually documented. Yeah. This 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 individual, this pedophile we're talking about, is actually under court order that he cannot ever be alone with children. Uh, with his ever, own child. At, at yeah. any time, even his own. Yeah. Because he they they had a son, and it came out that he either he did molest the boy or he confessed to having sexual attraction toward him. And he was barred from seeing his own son, you know, so the, of course that's going to happen. I mean, the guy was a serial pedophile in at least two or three states before he moved to Moscow to go to this new St. Andrews Bible College. 
you know, to, to, to have to have Doug Wilson marry this guy to a woman from his church and even defend it to this day, saying he would do the whole thing again. He has never retracted his actions, never done. You know, he actually wrote to the judge and asked for sentencing leniency for this guy. Yeah. You know, and, and in the other case, he wrote to the investigating officer investigating the seminary student, asking him to be lenient in his investigation of this this guy. So, you know, it, it that's the really twisted dark side of the purity culture. Oftentimes the woman gets blamed or the parents get blamed and the vic the abuser gets off scot-free. That's right. And that's well, and that's of course indicative of the whole model that we're describing here yeah. is it's not you know, there are people, there's a there's a spectrum of behavior. I think we all need to recognize that this is a thing right where there are some folks who might listen or hear this and think well you know i believe in some degree of biblical patriarchy and i'm not an abusive horrible person so why are you casting so many stones and it's like well that's nice for you but let's look at what this this sort of dogmatic thinking or belief set mm -hmm. look at look at what it justifies or where it can go where, where what can be enabled with it that's what we're trying to point out we're not trying to point out you who are a good person who is practicing yeah. you know some of this in a more sensible fashion we're not pointing fingers at you we're talking about the abusers and we're going they're using this system and the system mm -hmm is capable, is very easily capable of being used this way, especially when the people who are leading congregations and schools, which is what Doug Wilson is doing, uh, are are pushing this kind of messaging and pushing this kind of justification for abuse. Yep. That's exactly. what we're trying to highlight here. So I hope people can you know, step a little back from their own personal experience of this sometimes and realize that there's a bigger picture at play here that needs to be looked at because we shouldn't be enabling pedophiles or abusers. Yeah. That should be the most obvious thing in the world about all of this, but somehow that gets lost in the mix sometimes in the, yeah. you know, sort of passion of belief. Yeah, well, I've done six episodes on Doug Wilson and most of them are a, a two plus hours and there's still more content that I'm uncovering. But one of the things in, in agreement with what you're saying, the it's called the complementarian. That's another word for this position, biblical patriarchy or complementarianism. Mm. And it's the whole, you know, submission model. Now, going back to the late 1970s, early 80s, this is when this model started kind of coming out in evangelicalism. And one of the early adopters of it was the Southern Baptist Convention. This is one of the planks in their sort of theological platform mm -hmm. that they've embraced. And you look at the the case that came out a few years ago, over 700 documented cases within the Southern Baptist Convention of clergy sexual abuse of people in their congregations nationwide that we know of. There was an internal investigation. Now, I'm not saying it's all down to complementarianism or biblical patriarchy, but there is clearly a connection because what happens is it creates a culture that is rife for abuse because the abuser knows nine times out of 10, the woman will be blamed for it and he'll get off scot-free to continue abusing. And this is a pattern that we see over and over and over. So it's not just Doug Wilson, it's churches that embrace that sort of theology. And this is the culture that it creates. 
Exactly. And the way I look at it in terms of how does the abuse happen is you have people either raised in these groups, second gens, right, third gens, who are raised as entitled white males and told over and over and over and over and over again that, you know, their ego is all, their desires are all, anybody, you know, that they're going to connect with, any any women, obviously, because clearly in this in this bubble world, you know, the entire LGBT spectrum is completely satanic and awful and, and yeah. perverse. So that's not even under consideration in this group. So it's clearly man, woman, very clearly defined gender yeah. roles. And this yeah. is something people are raised with from birth. Or you have people of a more predatory nature who find or can, you know, sort of drawn to this like moths to a flame where it's like, oh, here's a group that is not only going to accept how I am, they're going to enable me. Mm-hmm. And and those two things, I think, are for the way I look at the world, are that are the things that 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 disturb me about about how these operations, how these how these uh, yeah. these setups work. Where did you know? So okay, so we got Doug Wilson. We have this guy who, by the way, just if this matters to you, it doesn't matter to me because I think <laughs> the guy's a predatory abuser. But there, he's not even a trained theologian. He's not. He no. never went to seminary. <laughs> no. He didn't go to school. He doesn't have any degrees. He's got no authority whatsoever granted by any external body to do no. any of what he's doing. But you know, he's just running with it. Yeah. Um. I guess maybe, and, and and there are analogies to L. Ron Hubbard and, and Scientology and Clearwater here between yep. what this group, Christchurch, is doing in Moscow, Idaho, and what Scientology is doing in Clearwater, Florida. It's, it's actually mm-hmm. a kind of a similar setup. Minority group in the bigger picture, but with an outsized reach and influence in that uh, town or in that, in that area. Um, yep. So there's, you know, so there are parallels here even to Scientology. But when we look at Doug Wilson and we go, okay, well, who is this guy? How did he rise to have influence and power in the first place? What's the what's the answer to that question? Well, it's interesting because one of my podcasts on him that just came out a few weeks ago, I inter- interviewed his former professor. So he does have a degree. He has a master's degree in philosophy from the University uh, of Idaho. Okay. And I interviewed his former professor, Dr. Nick Geyer, which was a fascinating interview because not only was Geyer his his master's sort of thesis over overseer, uh, he has since tangled with Doug Wilson because he lives in the Moscow area. So for years and years, he'd written articles. And in fact, we haven't talked about it, but the racism piece, the, the book that he wrote back in 1996, it was Geyer that sort of lifted the lid on what was going on in that, which that's a whole other thing we're going to have to talk about. But mm-hmm. so he does have a degree, but it's not like you say in theology, biblical studies, any of that. Like me, I've done two master's degree and a PhD in biblical studies, theology, Hebrew, Greek. You know, and when I look at a guy like Doug Wilson, I think, okay, I'm no longer a Christian, but at least I was an academic theologian. I've got the credentials to be a pastor, to be a Bible college teacher, seminary professor. Doug Wilson has none of those, like you say, and yet he's like a major, you know, he's being platformed and mainstreamed by really big names in the evangelical world. And they people, he's written loads and loads of books. So people think he's an expert and a theologian, but he really doesn't have any credentials. But what, as far as I can tell, what happened was his father was a guy named Jim Wilson, he moved to Moscow. He resigned his commission in the Navy decades ago to open up these Christian bookstores. And it was basically the, that's what uh, got Doug Wilson moving to Moscow 
Um, and then he went to the University of Idaho. And I think at some point he went and then he was in the Navy as well. Doug was. But then he, when he got out of the Navy, he came back to Moscow. And what, what the linkage is, is his father wrote a book, a little booklet called something about like strategic warfare for taking over a town. And it was a very dominionist type of argument. And that's basically the model that Doug Wilson has adopted where you, what you were talking about, the goal of Christianizing Moscow, Idaho. And that's taken from his dad's little book that he wrote when he was, you know, when he moved to Moscow. And that was the idea to take over a town to Christianize it, to make it into a Christian town. And that's still on their website. You can go to Christchurch's website and it says our one of our aims is to Christianize Moscow. We want to make it a Christian town. So it's not a secret. It's an open statement. It, it not dissimilar to Scientologists wanting yeah, to exactly. clear the planet and starting <laughs> with, well, let's take over a city. And you know, yep. and Clearwater, Florida has been their city of choice since the 1970s. And to this day, the city council there in Clearwater still doesn't really perceive or understand the threat Scientology represents. Mm -hmm. I wonder uh, how does Moscow, Idaho see, you know, the Wilson uh, Christchurch yeah. situation? Do you know how they're how they think about that? Yeah, it's a divided town, I think, in many ways. It's, it's a funny place because from what I understand, I've never been to Moscow, but someone's described it as a, a dot of blue in a sea of red. So you've got a very Trumpy Republican state in Idaho, and there's a whole connection there to the American readout. I don't know how much you know about the American readout, mm. but that's a whole nother piece to this thing. Doug Wilson is not really an American readout person. It's basically a belief system where people are moving to the sort of Oregon, uh, Washington state, Eastern Washington, uh, Idaho, Northern Idaho area, in the event of a cataclysmic sort of destruction of the United States, that'll be the only place that'll be safe. And they've got guns and they've got, you know, they're, they're anti-government, a lot of them. That's a whole thing. It's a militia type movement, survivalist, doomsday prepper. Doug Wilson's kind of on the fringe of that thing. But, you know, so there's some really disturbing connections with some of these groups out there for sure. But, but the, the this all came, came about, there was a, a, a conference that Christchurch held in 2004 and it was a, a quote-unquote history conference, and it was to promote this book that I mentioned a minute ago. He wrote a book along with another guy named Stephen Wilkins in 1996, and it was called Southern Slavery As It Was, and it was a sort of a biblical defense of slavery. And then they held this conference in 2004, and, and that's when Nick Geyer wrote an article exposing the sort of revisionist history of this book and very racist sort of reading of history. Uh, and that's when the whole thing blew up. And that's that's the next year Mark Potok wrote his article. So that's when Doug Wilson really kind of was blowing up in the sense that, whoa, who is this guy? He's actually been there for decades already, but nobody really knew he was flying under the radar. It wasn't until this conference came out. at the It was held at the University of Idaho. It caused an absolute firestorm of controversy. I mean, you had groups coming in protesting. The, the townspeople were protesting. They're like, what the hell? We're not a racist town. Who, who is this guy? Why are we platforming him? You know, so that's when a lot of him, a lot of his views came to prominence. Interesting. And just to give you guys some insight into this book, um, because it was, you know, there has been a lot of, <laughs> there's been way too many people who have kind of jumped on the apology of bandwagon when it comes to that period in our time, in our history of American slavery and the Confederate war as a whole. And there have been, um, massive, okay, not small. There have been really 
well-funded, well-run propaganda campaigns uh, over the decades, over the last century, to justify and rationalize that period of time and why the South was awesome and wonderful and why the secession was necessary and what happened there. And let's, let's kind of engage in a bunch of historical revisionism. And it's not... You know, if you go back and you watch something like Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, which I cannot recommend yeah, enough. It is great. Uh, it's an amazing piece of work. <clears throat> and it's probably, a, it's a tour de force in a critical look at the entire thing from both sides. It's not about romanticizing the South. It's not about glorifying the North. It's about a hard look at the whole thing and what an awful time period it was for everyone involved. But since that time, right, because the post-Civil War Reconstruction period was so awful to the South, and it was, and because there was, you know, some real, real atrocities, like Nazi-level stuff, like bad stuff done in the South to the Southerners, there, mm. you know, that and many, many other things have have sort of created this cultural divide where that you know people want to be right and they want to believe that they're on the side of good and there are cultural and historical tropes and and ideas that have that have sort of sprung out of this that have come up from time to time but i think you're going to agree with me having having said all that right and what for example one of them being that it was a states rights issue versus it wasn't about slavery it was about states rights this is, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. If you go back to the documents, it's crystal clear it was about slavery. But that's, that's not even the argument here, right? That's not what we're talking about when we talk about Wilson's book. I, mean, I think you'll agree with me when I read you just a couple quotes out of his book, how off the rails this man's thinking is when it comes to slavery. Mm -hmm. Quote, slavery as it existed in the South was a relationship based upon mutual affection and confidence there has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. Slave life was to them, to slaves, a life of plenty, of simple pleasures, of food, clothes, and good medical care. They didn't know how good they had it, Chris. Exactly, right? If only they knew. Right. Yeah. Oh, if we could return to those halcyon days when, you know, mm. white men were in charge, women knew their place and minorities knew theirs, the world would be yeah. uh, would be it's all according to God's plan. Right. This is this is the level of thinking we're talking about here. Right. Just to be crystal clear, yeah. this is not taken out of context. I don't even know how you could take these quotes out of context. <laughs> this is unjustifiable. Yeah. And this is where this guy lives. So. Yeah. Anyway, please. And he's, he's, please. Yeah, and he's never retracted. Now, that book was pulled from the shelf. This this is another arm of Doug Wilson's empire. He's got a an imprint called Canon Press, C-A-N-O-N Press. And that basically is his way of publishing his own books. So he can, it, it must be a sweet gig because every time he writes a book, his own press publishing company publishes it and promotes it. I mean, I would love to have that kind of power. I could just write books and never have to worry about getting a publisher because I've got my own publishing house, you know. And so this is a book that was, but then it was pulled by the publisher for plagiarism. And so that was part of the problem is that it turns out that a large sec sections of the book were lifted literally verbatim 
from a book from 1974 called Time on the Cross, which itself was debunked in its day. So not only was that a problem, B, it was huge chunks of it were just straight plagiarism. So that caused another issue. So that they, but then he since has re revised the book. It's now called Black and Tan. And so he sort of added to it, and but he never changed the thesis. Right. But I was going to say back on your earlier point, when you were talking at the top of the show, it's not necessarily a Turner Diaries type of racism, uh, white supremacy thing. It's yeah. really, when, when you read the book, it's only about, I think about 30, 35 pages. It's a little booklet, really. You could read it in 20, 25, 30 minutes. You find that the, excuse me, the subtext is it's it's about an inerrant view of the Bible. That's what they're really defending. And so what happens is the the logic is the Bible condones slavery. The Bible is inerrant. That means there's without error. It's infallible. It's authoritative. It's the word of God. Therefore, we cannot allow any cracks to appear in this facade of the Bible being 100% true. And therefore, because the Bible condone, condones slavery and we own slaves and we were a Christian nation, apparently, then we have to defend it. And that's that's how the line of argumentation proceeds. It's really a defense of the Bible's inerrancy and the Bible's own condoning of slavery. And then they can turn around and say, we also can condone, condemn homosexuality, abortion, because these are national sins that caused God to judge America. So it's kind of a Christian nationalist argument as well. Understood. It's very interesting to me. It's been interesting for years. It's something I've been puzzled over and, and explored and talked <laughs> with people about believers and unbelievers, academics and non-academics, such as yourself and others I've met, uh, who are believers, right? You're not, but I've talked with academics who are and yeah, sure. tried to understand, you know, this this thing about biblical literacy and how there are people who take this book and say, well, because to me, the first question of such a thing is, well, which translation? Which version? What uh, what are you talking about? How do you know this yep. is the one? But that, you know, that's that's the kind of logic that these people aren't engaged in. So they're raised with a book and maybe it's the King James version or it's the this version or it's the that version. Whatever version they're using, that's the one. They just mm -hmm. happen to be born in the right place at the right time to have the Absolutely. exact right inerrant word of God, right? And they take this and they run with it to a degree that is that most of us, even believers, would think of as ludicrous, as just absolutely mm -hmm. nuts. And that's, but yet, it's not just a couple people. And that's where it gets a little disturbing is there's large yeah. bodies of people who have accepted and believe that this is exactly how they're supposed to live their lives is, is, is that the Bible is literal truth. And, mm -hmm. and this is the Gothards. This is the Duggar family. This is, you know, this is not some, like it's an outlier, but it's a weird yeah. outlier because there's a lot of people who are involved yeah. in this to one degree or another. Yeah. Not and a fringe movement. No, it's not total fringe. No, it's very mainstream, actually. Yeah, and that's where I get disturbed because uh, just you know because again the questions start coming out and they are there's all kinds of ways you can attack and break this down and realize how illogical this whole thing is. But here's an ultimate expression of it is, okay, well, if the Bible is literally true, then that means everything in it must be inherently good, not just true, but good mm -hmm. and desired. Yeah. And this is how we're supposed to live our lives is stoning adulterers and not eating yeah. pork and not doing this and not doing that. Yeah. I, I wonder if Doug Wilson <laughs> eats pork or not, but you know, that aside, yeah. you know, th this is, this is taking this, this is again, an expression of that on that spectrum of where I describe far left, far right, 
you know, this tends to go far right. We don't see this kind of thing on the far left as often as we see it on the far right, this biblical literacy interpretation of, the, of Scripture and how because it's in, infallible and, and the way things are supposed to be according to God, this empowers these believers to think that they not only have to propagate the good word, they have to demand compliance. Mm-hmm. With their beliefs and ideas, it's not enough to you know live and let live or turn the other cheek. Oh no, no, not with these guys. This is about this is how the entire world is supposed to be, and that's mm-hmm. where we where you know Clint and I get a little disturbed because it's like this is <laughs> this is Christian nationalism in a nutshell, right? Yeah. Is it's really nasty stuff because it's not about tolerance or understanding. It's about theocracy. Yeah. Exactly. But I would say it's, it's going back to your description. It's Robert Lifton's sacred science. That's yeah. what this is. There we it? go. Because right. we And I, we did a great show a couple of years ago. I remember that where we went through eight, all eight points of Robert J. Lifton's sort of model of cult psychology and tactics and the psychology behind it and everything. And I think number five is sacred science. And so Scientology has got uh, Dianetics, but Christianity's got the Bible, yeah. so that's our sacred science. As a, as a Christian, I would have said 100% inerrant, 100% infallible, 100% authoritative. It's the model by which I should live my life and try to compel you, Chris, to live your life that way. And I've got to evangelize you. I've got to proselytize you because you're going to hell and all the rest of it. You know, so a guy like Doug Wilson, he's going to say, yeah, the Bible's inerrant. It's inspired. It's infallible. Um, not only is it my model for life, I've got to try and compel everyone I come into contact with to live by my reading of it, my interpretation of it. Exactly. How do they, let me ask you, just just from your point of view, and, and you are clearly an educated scholar when it comes to biblical to the, to the Bible. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I put and, a lot of years in. Yeah, decades. and I, I want to <laughs> kind of take advantage of that right now because I yeah. want to ask you something that actually has puzzled me for quite some time, is it seems that there is an incredible effort placed on emphasizing Old Testament philosophies and ideas and not a lot of attention given to new testament philosophy in that god and through his you know voice of jesus really flips the script between old testament and new testament it's you know mm. sinners in the hands of an angry god kind of old testament fire and brimstone and damnation New Testament, turn the other cheek, let's not beat everybody up, you know, live mm-hmm. and let live kind of philosophy. And, and of course, you can read what you want to in the New Testament, I suppose, but yet it oh, yeah. clearly is different. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, for those who look at that and go, well, yeah, but if you're really a Christian, then you're going to believe everything Christ said too. And Christ said this and this and this and this, and this <laughs> is all good stuff. This isn't corrupt, awful, let's, you know, let's do away with minorities and let's do away with all the world and let's reconstruct it in, in this, you know, biblical patriarchy way. That's not what Jesus said. Hmm. What's the argument here on that? How does Doug Wilson consider the New Testament and these kind of ideas? Well, it's interesting that you say the teachings of Jesus, that would be in the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah. But then most of the rest of the New Testament allegedly was written by the Apostle Paul. And that's where most Christians and most theologians get their actual theology from. 
It's from the writings of Paul. Mm. And that's where a lot of the patriarchal message comes from, because it's Paul who says things like, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. I do not permit a woman to teach in the church. She must be silent. She has to ask her husband at home. You know, women cannot be elders. Women cannot be leaders in the church. That is straight out of biblical patriarchy. And that's all from the writings of Paul. So they wouldn't cite Jesus. You know, and and ironically, Jesus, if you if you accept that he was a historical figure, he actually elevated many women and they don't like those kind of passages where, you know, he had women disciples. Apparently he had women that you know supported him in his ministry and all the rest of it. So they don't they don't like that idea that women could be on an equal footing with men in terms of church leadership and all the rest of it. Okay, very interesting. So I should. So I should think about this then in terms of the Gospels versus the writings of Paul and separate those two things. Because I've sort of, in my non-understanding, non-believer way, have sort of lumped all that together as New Testament versus, as I described, versus Old. Well, it's many many different layers because you have to understand that scholars accept the fact that the Gospels were written much later than Paul's letters or his epistles to these various churches in Asia Minor and the Mediterranean world— the Gospels came much later. So when Paul was writing his letters to the churches, he didn't have the Gospels. There was no such thing. They were written after his writings. So really, the early oh. Christian church adopted Pauline Pauline theology way before the Gospels because they weren't they didn't exist. So they were written decades after Jesus was you know allegedly served his time on the earth. So that's oh, that where clarifies. a lot of the Christian theology comes from. That yeah. clarifies a few things for me. That's fair. Thank you. Thank you for that. But that's interesting. The, the common mistake that Christians make or people make is just simply because the gospels are the first thing you encounter yeah. when you open the new, new Testament, you think, Oh, well, clearly that comes first. That's the story of Jesus. And then you get into the early church, which is Paul, but actually it wasn't chronological in terms of the writings. Paul's writings came first, then the Gospels came later. That just made sense to put them in that order in the text. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And I always thought of it more in terms of it came first because not only chronologically, but I believed in, again, in my, you know, just sort of three feet back from the whole thing kind of perspective (laughs) that that was because it was the most important part. No. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess you could say, because again, it seems as if Paul knows the gospels. The, the, it's, it's kind of common for, and I kind of thought this when I was a Christian growing up in the church, I always thought that, oh, well, Paul, you know, he knew Jesus and he, you know, hung with the disciples, but he didn't, according to the book of Acts, he never actually met Jesus in person and he wasn't a disciple. He only became saved much later. You know, he had this miraculous conversion experience and then he became an, he was actually a persecutor of the church when it first, when he first started, you know, he was, he was a a Jew, but he was persecuting the church and then he became a Christian and then became the apostle Paul, you know, so it's a whole backstory there, but yeah, Yeah, it's a a fascinating thing. It is. And it just, and again, it speaks to the mindset, but that's why I was asking is because I want to understand you know, where's Wilson coming from on this? And that's a very good clarification yeah. of that because because it really honestly bothers me, right? Because so many Christians I've interacted with over the years and probably some who are watching this show 
are, you know, are gospel Christ, yeah, you know, sure. turn the other cheek Christians, right? They are. And by that, I mean, they're, they're, they're about compassion and tolerance and, and a message of peace. And that, you know, that if you just accept Jesus, everything's going to be fine in your life. And you don't have to go to these extreme ends. Just have a little faith and things will be fine, right? And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not something I necessarily want in my own life, but I agree that, and I'm okay with somebody believing that. I got no argument with that whatsoever, yeah. You bring in this more extreme stuff, which starts justifying extreme behavior and exclusionary behavior. And no, no, those people are not the same as these people. And that kind of thinking is where I start kind of losing the plot a little bit because yeah. I'm like, but doesn't the New Testament say something different from that? So anyway, so thank you for yeah. clarifying. But there's there's another piece to this and that you might be conflating the more progressive liberal side versus the conservative fundamentalist side. So yeah. a guy like Wilson, he's going to land on the more conservative side. So he's going to go to Paul. He's going to pull out these verses talking about women submitting to their, to their husbands and all the, all those kind of things. The more progressive Christians, they're the ones who argue that we should be following the model of Jesus. The more, you know, he elevated women and all those kind of things, you know, so there are definitely two camps, two styles of reading the Bible, a more liberal side versus a more conservative fundamentalist side. So they're not the same. They're vastly different traditions. And on the, the liberal side, that's a view. I talked about complementarianism. There's another view called egalitarianism, which is much more elevating of women. So in egalitarian churches, they'll have women pastors, women elders, women will be leaders in churches. So that's a completely different stream as compared to the biblical patriarchy side where Wilson's going to be. So there's definite different traditions within Christianity. They, they don't agree on any sort of level. Yeah, very much so. And that's where, of course, yeah. why we see so many denominations and schisms. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. interpret it's all based on different interpretations of the exact same yeah. or very exactly. similar texts. You know, They just disagree radically. It's It's what's called hermeneutics, which is a... The, the art and science of biblical interpretation and their hermeneutics, the way they read the Bible is vastly different. So for Wilson, you were talking about Old Testament. He's going to come in more of the, the sort of Christian reconstructionist side where he's a very sneaky character. He doesn't identify himself totally as a Christian reconstructionist. He says he's a reconstructionist like 2.0, where he's, he's one of, he wants a softer, gentler version a kinder, gentler version. He's not as hardcore as a guy like Rush Dooney was where, you know, stoning of gays and incorrigible teens and all that. But Wilson, what he's trying to do in Moscow, I believe it is a, a dominionist vision, you know, and he's he is trying to bring it in in a very subtle, more, more sly way, I guess you could say, than a guy like Rush Dooney was. So for him, the Old Testament is very important because in some level, he wants some kind of theocracy. He wants to bring back those laws, but not in necessarily a top-down way. He's doing it more of a grassroots thing. So he's much more into the homeschooling, Christian school movement. That's another concern because all of his literature and curriculum are part of this world. So there's potentially tens of thousands of Christian homeschool kids who are reading Doug Wilson and they're being they're growing up with those influences. Yeah, exactly. And that's the whole thing that we had a problem with. One of the big things we had a problem with, with Bill Gothard's work, because he was doing the same yeah, shtick. He was not, exactly. uh, he was not taking Wilson stuff. He was doing his own. And yeah. we broke all those down, his seven principles that he had written uh, in his own master's <laughs> program yeah. when he was doing yep. his seminary work. And, yep. and he took those seven principles and he ran with it. And we broke down why they were inherently abusive and destructive to people's well-being and mental health. 
it's not even a question. It's that if you follow those seven principles, uh, you know, to the letter, the way Gother demands, uh, like the Duggar family did, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. results are going to be not quite great. And no. Right. And we saw lots of stories of abuse of survivors out of that, not just because Bill Gothard himself was a sexual abuser and predator, but because the theology, the dogma itself preached a, a dogma of abuse. Yeah. I suspect Wilson is doing the same thing with his homeschooling program, right? He's got a yep. whole homeschooling thing that he's trying to do. And that's where we get a little disturbed. It's not about they don't have the right to do it. It's a matter of criticizing what they're doing with that right. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like nobody's suggesting ban it. It's more of, hey, we need to take a good hard look at what's being given to children here. Because remember, in this whole picture, Children don't, (laughs) they're not making choices. They are being told this is how the world is. And that's going to frame their moral and, and religious ideas for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not small stuff. So, so that's why we get, you know, Clint and I get a little disturbed about this stuff. It's not about trying to take away people's rights. It's about trying to see what they're doing with them. Because, you know, the, you can do some really nasty stuff and still be completely yeah. within the letter of the law. Yeah. You know? And you get, gen- like I say, generations of kids growing up in these Christian homeschooling environments now as adults are leaving not only the church but the faith as well. And they're suffering from religious trauma syndrome and things like that. If anyone's interested, there's a really good blog. It's called Homeschoolers Anonymous. Mm-hmm. They have a Facebook page as well and a Facebook group. And that's basically what it is. It's it's ex-homeschoolers now speaking out about the abuses they suffered in those Doug Wilson-inspired homes, reading his literature, reading people like Gothard, going to those schools or being raised in that environment. And so, yeah, it's caused a huge amount of damage. And it is now. We, we don't even know about it where our kids are being abused in these Christian homeschool environments because the states are so afraid to go into these these homes because they're protected by the law. You get there's an outfit called the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and they're like a Christian legal powerhouse and they are absolutely rabid. Anytime a homeschooler seems to be threatened, they are right there. And they have incredible clout in Washington DC and in the legislation and things like that, you know, so they're protected. So there's a lot of abuses that are getting covered up in these homeschooling environments. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and I hope we're clear here. I hope everybody who's listening to this is clear that, you know, if you're homeschooling your kids, we're, we're not targeting you. We're targeting mm-hmm. this dogma, this, this belief set yeah. and the way in which homeschooling can be used as a form of thought reform. That's what I'm talking yeah. about, right? I'm not talking about yeah. education. I'm talking about a little bit further down that influence spectrum where you're in, in, the, in the realm of brainwashing. And that's a different thing, yeah. you know? And it's not it's, about yeah. what the beliefs are. It's how they're being taught, the emphasis with which they're being taught, and the social sort of integrity of it. Is this a, is this a set of beliefs or ideas that you're teaching that will integrate into the society? Or, or is it all about changing and taking down the society? Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. kind of an important question. So, yeah. And you've got to be careful because I wrote an article a few years ago, just off the back of the COVID lockdowns and everything for the public eye journal. And it was basically, I discovered that what was happening during the school lockdowns, you know, you had all these kids that were told they couldn't go to school. And so their parents were thinking, man, I've got to homeschool these kids. Now Uh, we're all sitting at home for, you know, however long this thing's going to last. 
So they started going out looking for curriculum to homeschool their kids because they just had no choice. And these we're talking secular parents or even just, you know, your garden variety Christians. And what they found was there's this huge backlog of Christian school and curriculum that's readily available. You can buy it from K through 12. And what they were, they started taking on board this material, but it was guys like Wilson. It was guys like Gothard. People had no idea that they were exposing their kids to this sort of, you know, doctrine, theology, whatever. And that's how subtly it can creep in to just the average everyday Christians sort of household. And that was not because they wanted to homeschool their kids. It was just because they had no choice because of the COVID lockdowns. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go ahead and get back on the track of Wilson here. Uh, so we've established that this man set up, um, you know, this congregation or or has this took over this congregation, Christ Church, in Moscow. He set up a school. He set up a university. Set up a printing press. By the way, not dissimilar to L. Ron Hubbard, right? L. Ron Hubbard's works <laughs> exactly. are all printed in house, right, by his own all publishing <laughs> company, right? Translated all of it, all done yep. by church members. Uh, again, lots of parallels here. So, uh, so where do we go with this? How how has this guy evolved into this into what he is today from these, you know, fairly we might say humble beginnings? Well, I think there's a couple of elements to this. When I was talking to, I was mentioning his former professor, Dr. Nick Geyer, and he's it's kind of funny because he's got like moles within Christchurch. He's not allowed in there because they know who he is. Of course, he's a local and he's he's actually debated Doug Wilson many times in, in various contexts and come off, you know, some, some of these ones, some maybe not so good. But he says that he thinks that the average sort of Christchurch congregant doesn't really is not aware of all the scandals and all like this book and the sexual abuse scandal. They just don't know. They just think he's a good pastor because he is a good communicator. He's very clever. He's a good preacher. And, and as far as that goes, he's entertaining. He's funny. He's got a sense of humor. He's a very clever writer. He writes tons of stuff on his blog. He writes a lot of books, you know, so he's, he's on that level. People just don't know. And they're not aware of the backstory, which is why I'm doing a lot of the stuff I'm doing. And then on the other level, like I said before, he's being mainstreamed all over the place by just sort of, you know, leading evangelicals. They ha they'll have him on their podcasts and their YouTube channels. He'll speak at conferences. They read his books. It's, it, you'll find his books in mainstream churches. They just don't know who he really is. You know, so that that's, the, again, the danger of it is how he's being platformed, how he's being mainstreamed within wider Christian evangelicalism. And this is how his, his message is spreading, or one way in which it's spreading. Interesting. So, okay. So then lots of books, lots of yeah. stuff, you know, congregation yeah, in Moscow, right? How is this? I mean, besides we've talked about homeschooling, and we understand how homeschooling can spread both purposefully and, and you know, accidentally uh, or organically, you might say. Um, you know, either people don't understand quite what they're hooking into or they do, but they don't necessarily know the full range of what's going on or they do and they like it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's yeah. lots of levels to this. A lot of spectrum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But where do where do we look at this now in terms of what other influences is this getting into besides the homeschooling side? You've mentioned yeah. dominionism and Christian nationalism. How does this connect with those ideas and groups? 
Well, it definitely is an element. Like I say, he's very sneaky when it comes to admitting whether or not he's a Christian reconstructionist or a dominionist. He never oh, uses me, the word dominion, but let me back up it's, a second. it's in there. Yeah, let me back up a second on there. What is a Christian reconstructionist? That's a new term for me. What does that mean? Right. Okay, so it goes back to a man named R.J. Rushduni, and he was an Armenian theologian, not Armenian, like Calvinist Armenian, but he was ethnically Armenian. Mm. And he, he was born in the United States, but his parents basically fled Armenia during World War I in 1915. And so they came to land in the United States. So he was born in this country, or in, I said, I'm not, I'm not in this country. I'm in, in your country, I mean. <laughs> yes, right. You're in the UK. <laughs> I'm not in America anymore. I, uh, I got my citizenship, man. Right. Anyway, he was born in America. So he started this movement called Christian Reconstructionism going back to about the 1960s, early 70s. And it was basically this idea that Christians are mandated to take dominion over the world politically. And his his Christian mm. Reconstructionist model was that it was going to be a long-term grassroots generational movement. It would take maybe a thousand years. But he believed that the church had to set up Christ's kingdom on earth before Christ would return. And, and only then would Christ return to, to rule and reign. So that, that kind of drives their theology. It has to be, the church has to win. The church has to be triumphant. And his, his sort of method of achieving that would be the homeschooling, Christian day schooling model. That's why he was such a big fan and proponent of Christian homeschooling was that he said it's going to take generations and generations. Kids raised with this teaching, eventually there's going to be enough of us whereby we will take dominion, we will run the world, and that's the model. Now, he believed that in Christian Reconstructionism, you had to have a literal application of the Old Testament law for society. Now, that proved to be too extreme. That was his dominionist model. For our civic law, we were going to have the Old Testament. That's why you had stoning of gays, and all the laws in the Old Testament were going to be literally applied to American society or worldwide society. So in the early Christian right. Back in the 70s and 80s, the Carter-Reagan days, they were reading his works. They latched on to the dominionist piece. They kind of sidestepped the more extreme elements of it. So even now, you still see elements of this dominionist-driven agenda in the Christian right. Even today, you see, you saw it with the Trump era for sure, and they've had, they haven't gone away, but they've, they've softened it. That's where a guy like Wilson is so dangerous, I think, because— He's not an out-and-out -out Christian Reconstructionist like Rush Dooney was and some of his early disciples. He's much more subtle and sneaky and sly about it, but he's still advancing that dominionist agenda. And like I said, we can see it in Moscow. He's doing it there. He's been doing it for decades. They're trying to take over the town, and that's a dominionist agenda. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it, and the, I guess the danger or threat in my mind from that goes from an isolated small town Okay, some you know some knucklehead in Idaho is is you know is preaching weird stuff, and a bunch of people kind of follow on that. It's the fact that this small group will connect with another small group, which will connect yep. with another small group, which will connect with another small group, and before you know it, you actually have a kind of a big group. And they might not all meet. That's not a total meeting of the minds. It's not that they're all agreeing. Normally, in fact, they would be different denominations, different sects, different ideas of this of the same kind of philosophical bedrock, you might say. But they mm -hmm. find strength and power in allies and realize that that's how you enact legislative change. 
yeah. right? You can't change the laws as a minority, little tiny group of, of people in some small town, but you can connect with 10 other groups mm-hmm. and suddenly you have a voter base that actually can make a difference. Yep. And then you're going to use messaging that's going to sort of water down because it's going to become more acceptable to a more mainstream audience. Let's find the talking points. Let's find the things that we can get people who are not in our extreme headset to agree on. Yeah. Right. And so the message gets watered down a little bit. I mean, do you, th- do you think what I'm saying is an accurate rendition of, of how these yeah. guys kind of operate politically? Well, I was going to say that's really the story of not just the, the how, how the Christian right came to be in America, but the whole evangelical base that you saw with Trump. They were they were already there. They just didn't they weren't being tapped. So when you go back to like Jimmy Carter, 1976, I think it was it was the year of the evangelical because all these Christians turned out to elect Jimmy Carter. And that was when they realized they're like, wait a minute. There's potentially millions of evangelicals sitting there. They're listening to guys like Jerry Falwell and you know people like famous pre- preachers on TV, uh, Pat Robertson and all those kind of people, 700 Club, Jim Baker and all those. They were there. They just weren't mobilized. And that's where they the sort of high-level leaders said, we need to mobilize that block. We need to mobilize that, ba- that base to start voting the way we want them to vote and to elect the candidates that we want to be elected. And so that they turned around and got Reagan elected off the back of mobilizing that huge block of evangelical voters. And that's really the story of how the Christian right came to be you know, a thing. It was all around abortion and all those sort of things that got them motivated to get involved politically. And that's where you see, that's where they started tapping into Rush Dooney. They're like, we need a framework. We need a scaffolding that, that has a theological background, a biblical background. And he'd already written loads of books. And they were like, wow, this fits perfectly. He's already got this dominion piece figured out. That's what we're doing. We're taking dominion, you know? So it made sense, didn't it? It really does. It's an interesting point that you make because Carter was a Democrat and Carter is probably one of the few people, uh, literally I have less than a handful of people who I truly, to my core, admire as individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Not for their beliefs, not for their ideas so much as they're as the way they've lived their entire life you know these are people who are worthy of our admiration i look at fred rogers i look at carl sagan i look at jimmy carter these are my idols um or at least these are people i idolize i'll put it that way um i don't have pictures of carter hanging in my house or something or it's not iron like man. that it's just these are models of iron man with jimmy carter yeah right exactly <laughs> it's, a, it's that's jimmy really carter in there right start. not, not yeah, robert downey it. jr right um that's it. but i but i want to stress right that it's that it's about their kindness their compassion their messaging of tolerance and 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 carter was was the epitome of what i would call a good christian so mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that you brought that up because I suddenly go, oh, yeah, of course. So he gets voted in off of an evangelical base that has not been tapped yeah. or not particularly yeah. been turned into a political group. Interesting during the time when people like Jerry Falwell and other Christian uh, law, you know, big names in the Christian oh, evangelical yeah. community were not anti-abortion. They were very much preaching, it's up to the woman. It's not our place to tell you how to act. That's literally what they said in the early 1970s. 
Then the script gets flipped. And I wanted to ask you, since we brought this up, let's go here. Reagan comes along, and that's when it's kind of historically been noted that they were gone after. And Reagan decides as a God-fearing Christian Republican who had a hardcore Republican background as a governor of California. He was an incredibly intolerant bigot. And he, and sexist and everything else, Reagan kind of represented the polar opposite of Christianity from what Carter represented. And yet he became their their Messiah figures politically. And that's when we kind of look to the Christian base as being really tapped as like, okay, now we're going to get these guys on board. But somehow they flipped the script in terms of the messaging. And I'm wondering if you have any comment or insight on how that happened. Oh man, that's a whole nother, how deep you want to go down? That <laughs> maybe just, if, yeah, maybe we could do another yeah. show on it, but maybe just for now, kind of like, because yeah. this is exactly what the Doug Wilson types are glomming onto is the, is yeah. the sort of script flip that happened where suddenly their extremist agenda suddenly became the, the, the thing to go after, the, the thing that was being supported. Yeah. And was getting yeah. mainstreamed. Yeah, but all the difference is Doug Wilson's not a Jerry Falwell. He's not a you know ranting preacher who's against. He is against homosexuality and abortion, but he's not on that sort of fundamentalist level as as a guy like Falwell was. But yeah, it's interesting. I would I would recommend if people want to find out sort of the origins of the Christian right. One of the best books is by Conway and Siegelman. It's called Holy Terror. And the brilliant part about that book is they were actually on the ground. It came out, I think, in 1982. Mm. And yet they were on the ground researching because they were like, what is going on here? During the Reagan, the run up to the Reagan election off the back of the end of the Carter era or administration, they were going, what's happening? So they went all over the United States researching this sort of burgeoning movement, which they didn't know what it was then. But now we know it, it was the nascent Christian right. You know, so that's one of the best, but I've had them on the show a few times mm. talking about their work. It's absolutely fascinating because they were there. Literally, they were there. They went to Washington, D.C. They went all over the country. They went and interviewed Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell. They were interviewing these people and getting on the ground information as to what in the hell was happening to America that these people were suddenly everywhere. And there was these huge rallies held in Washington, D.C., you know, March for Jesus and Washington for Christ and all this kind of like, what what's happening, man? This is a whole new thing, you know. And like you said, though, it was the abortion piece. The planners really were, were the geniuses of it because they convinced Jerry Falwell, look, abortion is your ticket. It's not about, you know, segregation in school. That was what he was really upset about. It was the government overreach, you know, after Brown versus Board of Education. That's what pissed guys like Falwell and Bob Jones off. Mm. But they said, you're not going to motivate America talking about racial segregated Christian schools. That doesn't turn people on. Abortion, though, that will get them fired up. And um, there's, I don't know if you've come across Frank Schaefer. He's another name in there. His father, Francis Schaefer, was a big advocate for this whole anti-abortion piece back in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. And Frank and his father made a series of films, and that that kind of was what spurred the movement on. So Frank, he's now an ex-evangelical, but he would say, I, I basically helped launch the anti-abortion movement. I helped start the Christian right 
with what me and my dad did back in the seventies and eighties, you know, so there's a whole backstory to this whole thing. Mm, wow. It's fascinating though. It, it really is. is. And we have, and I'm glad you brought those names up and, and the fact that it was not an organic, a fully organic process. It was a created. Oh, no. Very planned and very, yeah, you would say diabolical in a way because mm. there was a few key leaders. There was a guy named Paul Weirich, and he was he he started the Heritage Foundation, the Council on National Policy. Mm. He started a lot of these, and they're still around to this day. I mean, the Heritage Foundation was the one who gave Trump all the names of the judges to appoint. The Council for National mm. Policy is a dominionist secretive organization that's still running today. And Weirich started those. He helped uh, Jerry Falwell start the Moral Majority. You know, so he was a key player and he was a, strat a strategist, really. And he had this idea to mobilize that base, like you were saying. And that's he's one of the main players behind the whole Christian right. But most people have never heard of Paul Weirich, you know, but he was a major, major player. Interesting. Very interesting. And so yeah. I guess what we're really talking about here in relation to, 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 to Doug Wilson's story is that this is how the national stage the sort of ground was made sort of fertile yeah for a guy like wilson for a guy like wilson that's right yeah exactly yeah so where okay so so we've kind of laid this whole kind of picture out here so now what is what else do we need to know about this guy beyond what we've discussed so far any what what are any other yeah. major points about this guy there is one more thing i was going to say off the back of your comment earlier yeah. what do we have to watch out for what is his influence because now he's getting a bit long in the tooth but what's happening is you get second and third generation there's a whole movement of these sort of biblical patriarchy guys one of the things that sets him off, and I hate to say this because I, I always love having a beard, but and you've got a, a beard as well, but these guys have these massive long, it's like a beard thing, you know, something about the manosphere, the biblical patriarchy movement. What we're finding is there's an overlap between the biblical patriarchy guys and the secular manosphere. So we've had just recently back in October of last year, there were two pastors who spoke at a manosphere event in Orlando, Florida. It's a completely secular thing. And yet, why would two Christian pastors be invited to speak at a anti-feminist secular manosphere thing? That's because they've been preaching this message of biblical patriarchy, which is finding res resonance in the manosphere. And that, to me, that's a completely disturbing new trend. Right. I see that. I get exactly what you're talking about, because here we're talking yeah. about the popularity of the Andrew Tates of the world or, exactly. you know, which the Joe type, Rogan's and the Joe Rogan's. That's right. The sort of people who come out of, I mean, actually, I shouldn't say come out of who are idols of or who become poster children for the incel community. Yeah. Right. The involuntary celibates or who have a very, very bizarre idea of female male relationships and how those are supposed to work or your Andrew Tates, right? Who are not necessarily yeah. incels. They are kind of a different breed of yeah. men are men and, and yeah, they the should alpha be male. Yeah. The alpha male thing. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and for them, it's like men are men and women should be nervous. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit of that kind of thing. It's like, you know, females are our property or they should be, or we should regard them that way. And it's kind of this bro culture of here's how you pick up women and here's how to uh, get, you know, get a lot of money. And here's this, and it's a popular cultural identity of success and fame and fortune by being a man. 
as opposed yeah. to, you know, these wimpy dress wearing guys who aren't real men who are just kind of, you know, trying to be females and how disgusting and awful and horrible that is. And that's that's its own level of awful, right? Because there's, again, intolerance and, and a lack of empathy or understanding of anybody but their own ego. And it's sort of an ego glorification thing as far as I can tell. Yep. Well, one thing you find, I was mentioning earlier, talking about complementarianism, which is kind of a, a stream of biblical patriarchy, goes back to the late 70s, early 80s. It was a reaction against the encroachment of feminism in the church and in society. And what you find, what I did, I just did an episode on Doug Wilson and the Manosphere, how his influence is being felt in the Manosphere through these two guys that were at this event in Orlando last year. And what you find is that is a very common thread you see in the Manosphere. It's an anti-feminist movement. You know, these red right. pill guys that are saying, we need to wake up to the reality that women are actually running the world and they're not taking any responsibility for it. And the incels are saying, well, they're the reason why we're not getting laid and all the rest of it. You know, and that is a thread that runs through biblical patriarchy and complementarianism. It's a reaction against feminism and a reaction against egalitarianism. And Doug Wilson has, has been preaching that message for decades. Now, these two guys that spoke, both of them have been, you know, on his Canon Press YouTube channel, podcast together with him. Uh, Michael Foster was one of them. He's written books on the Canon Press label. You know, the other guy's been on, he's a pastor out of Ogden, Utah, uh, Brian Salve. And he's, he's, he's got a long reading list of recommended Doug Wilson books, you know, so these guys are in his orbit and they're taking messages like what he's preaching. Now they're saying we found a receptive audience in these secular manosphere events. And um, th this is now spreading into this new realm. Right. Because there isn't really any platform that they're not going to, or group or subgroup that they're not going to want to bring into their yeah space and of exactly. course this is all about that you know claiming dominion right it's like taking things mm -hmm. over this is not really a whole lot different from what scientology engages in with its front groups by the way just again yeah. to bring parallels here right so that so that y'all kind of understand what we're talking about is we're talking about how do you grow a movement well you don't necessarily just get converts to your thing you find adjacent groups who might not be on the same place you are but close enough that you find enough common ground and then the assumption is well we'll convert them along the way <laughs> yeah. exactly right because every science yeah every scientologist thinks everybody is a scientologist they just don't know it yet yeah you know that kind of and thing. that's how it's interesting i i went into the the couple of tweets that both of these guys put out last year and their argument was well we're being invited to this thing it must be a god thing you know, that's what that's how they spun it. Right. And we can't refuse this invitation because clearly these poor incels are desperate for the gospel. And that's why we're going. And my argument was, no, it's, it's, it's the opposite. It's not that. It's not a God thing. It's the fact that the message you've been preaching for years is finding resonance with these people in the manosphere. And you're trying to, like you said, pull them into your orbit. So it's a very toxic thing. It's not a God thing at all. It's just that. It's a, it's a message that has resonance in this community. Exactly. And it just so happens to be the reason we're talking about this today to, you know, if we haven't made this clear is, and, and I just repeat this stuff over and over again, cause I, cause I get so misunderstood sometimes 
is this is about human rights. You know, this is about like, these are groups of people who are not about human rights. These are not about a fair and equal playing field for everybody. These are, this is the exact opposite of that. They have very, very clear cut structural ideas of how society is supposed to work. And if you're not part of their club, you're dead. You know, that's that kind of thinking. I mean, it's really, it's, it's quite extremist stuff. Yeah. Well, like you said, Um, when you were talking about earlier, in the biblical patriarchy model, there's only one view, and that is heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman. There's only two genders. There's no trans. There's none of that kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. It is a man. Your your biological gender is what you were born with. That is what you are in their worldview. You know, so there's there's no LGBTQ rights. There's no same-sex marriage. None of that is allowed in that patriarchal world. So like you say, when it sounds sort of like, well, we're just going to you know, have this sort of marriage where we complement each other. That was the whole thing about complementarianism. You compliment me, I compliment you. What's wrong with that? No, when you drill down into it, it's this patriarchal model. It's That's actually right. quite toxic and, and harmful and damaging. Exactly. And wordplay is all about, this is all about wordplay. Um, you know, the complementarianism thing, for example, is a great, great example of loading the language because it's the similar, Mm -hmm. similar kind of analogy, I suppose, to, um, to how we see, uh, an attempt to appropriate science with intelligent design. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Like, oh yeah, we're going to we can't bring Christ into schools, but we can bring (laughs) intelligent design. Oh Right. Oh, it must have been literacy. That's right. Exactly. That's what they're doing. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. Right. How do we get around these rules? Because our way is the best way. It's the only way. And we have to, in you know, have a world that that, that, that comports with our vision. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ugh, 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 ugh. You know how I feel about that stuff. So, <laughs> uh, all right, Clint. Well, this has been interesting. This has been very interesting, very enlightening for me, uh, and I hope for my audience. Um, how do? Before, let's go ahead and start moving toward wrapping up here, and then um, I think we will bookmark a few other talks we might be wanting to do yeah. in the future. I'm Definitely. very interested in um, in your uh, experiences with Conway and Siegelman and and some of that. Oh yeah, that Genesis story on um, Christian nationalism and how it entered the the political arena on a nation. Yeah wide stage in the 1980s this is not a small deal and i know a lot of people might think about that as ancient history i happened to be alive then clint happened to be alive then so was i I, you know i I saw ronald reagan in seattle yeah you know his second election i was a big reagan fan i voted for him you know yeah i was in school at the time and i thought Um, I, you know, I believe the propaganda that we were in the best of times in the 1980s and it was all Reagan's fault. Right. And boy, have I come to unlearn some of that over the years. Oh yeah. Oh, nasty, nasty stuff. So I think, I think we'll definitely be getting together again soon, but how do people find you? It's been a lot too long. So how do they, how do they uh, locate you on your mind shift podcast? Okay, yeah. So like you say, if you look me up on Mindship Podcast, I mean, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, all the basic platforms. You can find me on Twitter at Mindship2018. You can also go to my public Mindship Podcast Facebook page. If you want to send me an email or a message, you can do that through the Facebook page. So there's a couple of ways you can get a hold of me on social media. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I will throw some links to that stuff in the description and show description here below. Um, And I will encourage you guys to check it out. I have always enjoyed my discussions with Clint. They have 
always been entertaining and educational for me. And I <laughs> and, and again, I hope they have been for you guys as well. Clint, thank you very much for taking the time to be on my show today. Thank you, Chris. It's been way too long, but we're not going to let that happen again, surely. I want to have you on my show too, so we'll book you back in as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, folks. If you are finding this show, by the way, Educational, Informative, Entertaining, um, please consider supporting the show. Okay. Patreon, PayPal, Venmo. I'm looking at uh, maybe I've, maybe by the time this posts, I will have enabled channel memberships on YouTube. I'm not sure yet. That's what I'm thinking about right now. And of course, if you are, uh, I got pl- to plug this. Um, if you are looking for consultation, right? Not therapy, not not treatment. I don't do that kind of psychology. But I do know more than your average bear about coercive control and how it works. And so if you are a survivor of domestic abuse or a cultic situation, something like that, you want some help or advice about reintegrating into the world, or you have somebody, a friend or family member who is suffering right now from a coercive situation, you can reach out to me. Maybe I can help. Maybe I can help give you some advice or direction on what to do or how to go about dealing with that so that it doesn't become a worse situation than it already is. Uh, So contact me by email anytime and we can uh, work that out and through my website. All right. So that all being said, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.